Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. We've been going through a sermon series called Guardrails. Guardrails are statements that we have at The Vine. We have 10 of them. And these are sort of like bumpers that help keep us on course, help keep us accountable to the path that God has set for us. Uh, They're ways that we establish and secure and sustain our culture here at The Vine. So today's guardrail is go to their turf on their terms. And our scripture reading is going to be from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was so short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. I have an older brother, and growing up, we each had our own room. Um, But there was a short-lived experiment we decided to try out for just a short amount of time. We thought it'd be so much fun if we shared a room. So our parents bought us a bunk bed. We shared the room, and quickly... Conflicts began to rise between Scott and I, and we had this genius idea of how to solve our problems. We got out a roll of tape and pulled that tape out in the middle of the room, and Scott said, Mark, that is your side, and this is my side. We thought we solved everything. This is my space, and that is yours. And you know how this eventually will will take place with this. Eventually, something kind of slid over. Someone walked over uh, the, the tape, and eventually you go, uh-uh-uh, no, that's my side. Stay on your side. And then we quickly began to realize, uh, you know what's better, more effective than a roll of tape is actually a wall. And so we decided, like, we're just going to go back to our own rooms, our separate rooms. You know, space matters. We all want to know boundaries. Is this my space or is this their space? And in our culture, in our age, there can oftentimes be this uh, invisible line between the church's space and the world's. If we're not careful, we can lay down the tape dividing uh, where the church exists and where the rest of the world exists. This divide of who's on the inside and who's on the outside, the, the, who, where's holy and what's not holy, where's sacred and secular. And eventually what it, it can end up doing is it can have this experience of the church versus the world. We even know this in, oftentimes in the way in which we speak and what we do with our worship. Oftentimes we call the church, this is God's house. Well, if that is the case, well, what do we say about the rest of the world? 
if our pulpits and our pastors are God's special people, special places, what does it say about the rest of the way in which we encounter God? If this, our worship is God's hour, what does that say about the rest of our days? Subtly and often unknowingly, we can put down tape in our life and tape in this world, in our calendars, where we practice our faith in particular times with unique people that are removed from the rest of our days and the rest of our world. And the problem is not only that it bifurcates our life and our world, but also that mentality oftentimes can create boundaries and barriers from those who feel like they are on the inside versus those who are on the outside. People who perhaps don't know the odd language we use when we gather, the rituals and the traditions that seem foreign and weird. And people might step into Christian spaces, the church spaces, and feel like, did I just cross over a tape somewhere along the way? Do I belong here? This is exactly the opposite of what Jesus came to do. Jesus met people where they were. Jesus did not wait for them to come to the temple, to come to the religious spaces. Jesus met people on their turf and on their terms. He did not set the terms. He did not say, I will be in relationship with you once you believe this, once you've done this or look like this. He met with people on their turf and their terms. That's what we hope to be and do as a church, as the vine. So let us consider a moment from Jesus' life The scripture reading that we had earlier today was from the Gospel of Luke. This section of Luke's Gospel, the story that Luke wrote about Jesus, is called the Gospel to the Outcast, the good news to those who are outcast. It's in Luke 19. It begins with verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. What do we know about tax collectors in that day and age. Well, this was a time where Rome began conquering different nations and people. And because Rome didn't understand how different societies work, the culture and customs, they did something that was kind of genius. They went to someone there that might have a proclivity to be a tax collector, someone who knew where trade took place, someone who knew the customs and said, I tell you what, could you tax your community We only want a percentage. You can actually take more than that percentage. You can keep that, but you need to send to Rome this this amount of money per week or per month. So just to kind of put in common day experience, imagine if you will, now this is going to be hard to do, but imagine that California was taking over Texas, okay? Just um, put on your imagination for a second. And they took over Texas and they got here, and they started bragging about how cheap our real estate is. Oh, what cheap houses you have here. They started adding the word the in front of our interstates for no reason at all. Did anyone else drive on the 35 to get here on the one? No? So they got here, and they began to realize, okay, we need to take some money from all the brisket cells and everything else that Texans do. So uh, how about we find someone here who can begin to tax their neighbors? So Zacchaeus, how about you? And so Zach said, sure, I'll be that. How much money can I keep? As much as you want. Okay, deal. I'll take it. So 
do you, how do you feel like Texans would respond to Zacchaeus? You think that that would be the most loved person in our community? You think they would be honored and revered? Probably not. This is exactly the experience that they had of Zacchaeus, but even more so, this was their holy land. Like, we might think that Texas is holy in its own right, but they actually, like, they believed that God had given this country, and Zacchaeus had turned on them, and he was this tax collector. Not only that, but he was the chief tax collector. This is the only time we find that that term used in all of the Gospels, that Zacchaeus was the chief of all the tax collectors. And in midst of all of Zacchaeus' wealth and power, Zacchaeus had a deep need. Like many of us, oftentimes when we get everything that we want, we realize how easily that thing disappoints us. And so Zacchaeus had this longing we find this in verse 3. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but because he was short and he could not see over the crowd, so he, he ran ahead of them and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So more, more than just a tax collector, here we see that Zacchaeus was what kind of man? What do we find in that verse? He was a short little man. Some might say a wee little man. I too have been a wee little man. It's been rough. I know many of you out there, I see towering people, but uh, I remember perhaps it was when I was shoved in my middle school locker, I thought to myself, maybe I should diversify my gene pool. I'm going to find the tallest woman I can, and I'm going to marry her. And future generations of Charbonneaus down the road, they would have a picture of great-great-grandfather Charbonneau with me and my wife, you know, like a picture of us, and they would appreciate it, me jumping on it on the grenade like that. But no, I, uh, it's, a, it's interesting, the experience of being small in stature. I wonder if Zacchaeus was compelled for pow- power and wealth to make up for the stature that he felt. Zacchaeus often, perhaps was lonely because if you turn on your community, I doubt that you're invited over to the dinner table. So the only relationships that Zacchaeus probably had is with others who are outsiders. I think along the way, Zacchaeus probably just embraced the shame that his community gave him, perhaps gave him a new name as traitor, greedy. Yet in the midst of that social and spiritual brokenness, Zacchaeus was still curious. Who is this Jesus? I have to wonder, why would Zacchaeus care so much to see Jesus? Perhaps he heard stories about Jesus, how Jesus didn't go after the in crowd. He didn't go after those who were the most esteemed in the religious community. He didn't go after the elite. He grabbed the least likely. Even even his disciples, the people who Jesus chose to be his followers, were surprising, common, ordinary fishermen. And even a man named Matthew, who was a tax collector, Upon hearing this, I wonder if Zacchaeus had a spark of hope, a curiosity in his heart and in his mind. And I wonder if that's what drove Zacchaeus up a tree to see who this Jesus is. In verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot on the base of this tree, Jesus looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down here immediately. And what did Jesus say? How dare you? 
How dare you turn on your brothers and sisters? Who do you think you are, you greedy little man? To give up your brothers and sisters and give it to the oppressor? Shame on you. I'm going to teach little children to sing a song about how we and little you are for many generations. No, instead, Jesus said these shocking words, come down immediately. I'm going to stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And as shocking as that might have been to Zacchaeus, the crowd of people that had gathered there with him, they heard this public statement. And all the people, this is verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. You see, Jesus gives this picture of grace here. In the most surprising turn of events, Jesus goes to the despised, the hated, the ill-religious, the greedy traitors, and asks to be invited into his home. In Zacchaeus' culture, Jesus uh, is making this request not just for a meal, but for an intimate relationship, a friendship. And notice, Jesus didn't want to be the host. He didn't, didn't want care to be in control. He didn't set the terms of engagement. He had been, gone to be the guest of a sinner. And why I think this is so important, what if at the base of this tree, what if they had this short encounter between Jesus and and Zacchaeus at the base of this tree? What if Jesus gave the short lesson on grace and repentance and forgiveness, and upon hearing that, Zacchaeus shared this prayer and asked Jesus into his heart, and Jesus thanked him and went along his way, kept moving on. What would be missing? Let's hear a couple of things. Actually, you can share it out loud. What would be missing if that was the only encounter that Zacchaeus had with Jesus? If it was only this short encounter, what would be missing? Yes. Love? All right. Pastor's kid. It's either love or Jesus, one of those two. I don't know what, it has to be one of those two. Well, think about it, friends. I wonder if Zacchaeus, by the way, that was correct, Dylan, you win. Um, I, if they had this little interaction, what would be missing is, I think along the way, Zacchaeus would have wondered, sure, that was nice, but what if Jesus really knew me? Like, what if Jesus truly knew what my greed provided for me? Like, what if Jesus actually saw me through and through? What if Jesus knew the friends that I keep? I wonder, would he still forgive me? Would he, would he still love me? I wonder if Jesus saw my pride, my self-centeredness, would he still claim me as his own? And instead of this short microwaved encounter of grace, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down I'm staying with you tonight. I'm going to go home with you. I want to see what your life is all about because it's from that place, from the center of your being, that I want you to know and hear words of grace. I don't want you to, for a second, think 
that this forgiveness is a cheap layer, a thin layer of what I have to give you. I want you to know the gift that I give you is friendship. Jesus went to Zacchaeus' turf. The plan wasn't to get Zacchaeus to some rally at the temple or the conference or the neighboring city or the meetings, the meeting of a bunch of disciples. Zacchaeus encountered Jesus in his living room with his friends at his table. And if you read this story carefully, Jesus never told Zacchaeus that he was wrong. He never gave him an ultimatum, never even offered forgiveness. Jesus offered friendship, friendship on Zacchaeus' turf, a relationship. And based on the response of this gracious gift of friendship, Zacchaeus transformed. Salvation was given. I just want to push a pause button here real quickly and just make this point. Do you know that more than wanting to use you, that Christ wants you to know that he longs for a relationship with you? Like to be with you. Before sending you into this world, Christ wants to meet with you, not only in a worship moment like this, but in your home, in your workplace, in your private moments, that Jesus wants to know that he's there with you. And perhaps you might need to have the experience that Zacchaeus had. You might feel like you're far from God today. And maybe you showed up this morning or maybe you're watching this at some point just because you're curious, who is this Jesus? Maybe with a little bit of curiosity, you climbed up on a tree hoping to see something different. And I just want you to to know that Jesus doesn't long for you to clean your act up before you know and experience God's love. But Jesus leads with his grace. His grace goes in first. And Christ knows you through and through. And Jesus still seeks and saves those who feel lost. So while at Zacchaeus' home, maybe with the motley crew of friends that Zacchaeus had, this thing happens. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up, although they couldn't tell he stood up because he was so short. He stood up and said, look, Lord, here and now I give you half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus gave half of his possessions and four times he paid back that which he felt like he stole. And notice this was not... This was not to earn forgiveness or earn a relationship. It came out of it. It came of of an overflow of God's grace. Like this was the fruit of Zacchaeus knowing Jesus' grace and love. His generosity came from his home. It came there with his crew, his friends. And Jesus said to him, today, notice this word, today salvation has come to this house, this turf. Because this man, Zacchaeus, too, is a son of Abraham. And Jesus took away all the names that perhaps he was given of traitor, greedy, whatever else. And Jesus said, you're a child of God. You're a child of the promise, Zacchaeus. Salvation has come to this home. This story so clearly displays for me the mission of Jesus 
If we were to imagine, if you could imagine, what would God do with the Son of God's time here in this world? We might, in this day and age, think that Jesus, it would be wise for Jesus to post up at a temple to make it grow it and have a bigger audience and grow into a mega temple, right? Or maybe we would think that Jesus would come and be king and reign with power and prominence. But instead, Jesus did not teach removed in a temple or away in a palace, removed from the needs of the world. Instead, Jesus seemingly wandered from town to town, meeting people where they were, fishermen tending their nets, a desperate father hoping for a cure for his dying daughter, a paralyzed man waiting by a pool hoping for some sort of healing, a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman just getting water by herself in the heat of the day. Jesus didn't wait for people to find them in a temple. Jesus brought the temple to people on their turf, on the other side of the tape, not on the religious turf, but Jesus met them on their own turf. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that what we do in our worship doesn't matter. I'm not saying don't invite people to our church gatherings. I think this is actually really important. If you look at the scripture, you find that Jesus went to temple himself. He needed that. And after this pandemic, I, I, I actually appreciate gathering as God's people and worship more now than ever before. It's important what we do here. It's important that we gather together encouragement to, to share our prayers, to hear God's word, and to worship God who is worthy of our affection. But if this concludes our life of following Jesus, we're simply just rehearsing religion. We are called to follow Jesus, not only into our moments of worship, not only to our gatherings as a church, but we are called to follow Jesus into the world, not just into some safe Christian enclaves removed from the needs of the world in our city. We are called to follow Jesus into the turf in the terms of this world, just like we remembered in our prayers of the people there's a lot of pain on our, in people's lives. There's a lot of pain and sorrow and brokenness in this world. And we are called to go and to meet with people there, not on our terms, but on their terms. We should be keenly aware of those who are praying for compassion, who are longing for justice, and for us to simply go and be with them as Christ would be with them. This should compel us to humble ourselves, to seek to be people who are faithfully following Jesus. We don't do this because we, as we go to be the Savior, we do this with this hopeful faith that God is already there at work without us, but we are there to partner with God. I recently read from cultural critic Ken Myers. He argues that our world, the turf in which we live in, is, is marked by a certain type of atheism that marks our society. It's not a, and this atheism of this day and this age is not some intellectual conclusion. It's more of a mood. His point was, it's this overall feeling that God is distant or non-existent. I think this is a profound observation because if, in fact, God's re uh, people's rejection of God is not necessarily a conclusion, but more of a mood, Perhaps we can disrupt it not with an argument, 
but with our presence. We must be present in this world, sent as the fragrance of Jesus, the one who deeply cares for this world. I believe that people aren't waiting for a better worship set or a more engaging sermon series, although I think it's both important. But this world's not waiting for us just to update our worship set and our sermon series. People are waiting to be seen, to hear words of mercy, to experience unconditional love. They are hoping for a friend's listening ear, for empathy, compassion, and joy. And we can provide some of that here in our worship, but ultimately, this is what God wants to do in and through our lives and your life. People aren't waiting for us to adjust what we do on this side of the tape. They are waiting for people who are willing to step over the tape and love like Jesus. This is the movement that started 2,000 years ago. It began with simple communities of people who were committed to one another, to the claims of Christ for the sake of the world. Communities that were committed to one another, to the claims of Christ for the sake of the world. The early church didn't have conferences or conferences or concerts that sold out arenas. They were small. They almost seemed insignificant, like a little mustard seed, like a little bit of yeast working its way through dough. They didn't have to own large properties or facilities because they had dinner tables. They had a little provision to care for the widow, the orphan, the refugee in their midst. They had the power of prayer. They had God's word. They had the water of baptism. They had a cup. They had bread. And they had the spirit of Jesus stirring their hearts and empowering them to love wholeheartedly. That's the beginning of the church. That's what transformed the world. I love, I I, I found this description of the early church in 130 AD. Listen to this description. And I love how it describes how the church We're part of a tradition that met people on their turf and their terms. This quote is, Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of humankind by country, speech, or custom. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not speak of a special language. They do not follow a peculiar manner of life. Their teaching was not invented by ingenuity or speculation of men, nor do they advocate mere book learning as other groups do. They have a common table, but no common bed. They live in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but through their way of life, they surpass these laws. They love all people and are persecuted by all. In a word, what the soul is in the body The Christians are in the world. What the soul is for the body, the Christians are in the world. This is the tradition for which the vine came from. And though it was written almost 2,000 years ago, it is still who we are called to be. People living their lives within our city and for our city in response to Jesus. Simple communities of people, meeting people, as Jesus did, where they are, not waiting for them to cross over the tape. Friends, this guardrail exists for our community. 
so that we follow Jesus over the tape, maybe even pull the tape up between us and the world, pull up the tape between our religious life and the rest of our life. Because wherever we are spending our days, wherever we are going, God is sending you there. So may God fill us with courage and compassion to follow the way of Jesus, to have eyes to see people who are hiding in trees, hoping to get a glimpse of grace, to be willing to step over the tape, to enter into people's lives, into their pain, into their hopes, so that we can partner with the Christ who is already there.